so you'll have to bear with me as I read it uh, this morning, but Daniel 6, I just want to give you the proposition and the outline, and then we'll have a word of prayer and read the text. It says, or I, I wrote down that the, the proposition I would like to suggest to you from this passage today is that, that you and I as um, believers must trust God and serve him, living uh, for him no matter what the circumstances. Um, that is, we, we, we uh, ally ourselves to our relationship to God and serve him and faithfulness to him no matter what happens. And in the midst of that, uh, in conjunction with that proposition, there are three lessons from this text that we can find, I think, helpful in the midst of changing circumstances. Uh, number one, that ungodly people will say and do anything for power and control. You will find that in this text. And we know that to be true. Uh, that, that when it comes to power, people will say and do anything to be able to get power and to keep power. Secondly, the children of God must obey God and bear the consequences of their obedience. That is, um, uh, in this life, sometimes not a fair shake, um, but in the life to come, uh, it is having a clear conscience before God. And then thirdly, and finally, no matter how firm man's decrees are, God's law is supreme, or God's rule is supreme, you might say. So either one of those would fit. And so let's pray, ask God's blessing upon our time as we open his word this morning. Lord, thank you for the privilege uh, to be able to come together, uh, to be able to spend these moments together, uh, to be able to look at your word. And as we think of Memorial Day weekend, and we think of the the freedoms that we have had as a nation to this point, we know that many, many lives were given in sacrifice uh, for this to be possible for us. Both men and women uh, throughout the years of our country have put their life um, and made it expendable so that they might uh, provide a safe, and free country of which we have enjoyed and have been the recipients of both a bountiful land and a land that has really an unprecedented freedom. And probably like no other time in recent past, we realize how valuable that freedom is and how much we take it for granted and treasure it and ought to treasure it. So we pray today as we uh, think of this weekend, we want to first of all thank you for so many who have made this day possible by giving their lives and, uh, for the sake of our country that we might be able to be here today with the freedoms that we have. And further, uh, we would want to uh, give you thanks for your provision of this freedom, knowing that none of this could happen, no matter how dedicated and no matter how bold and courageous, uh, none of it could be here and happen without your um, sovereign plan and your working uh, all of it out after the counsel of your will. And so we recognize that and thank you for it. 
Uh, We pray that you would bless our time, help us as we both treasure our freedom, also give us uh, the ability to stand true for you, knowing that much of what we believe and much of the freedoms that we have are rooted and grounded in the scriptures and what they teach. Bless our time together. Use your word both to comfort and convict us. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Daniel 6, if you're there, you follow along with me. Again, it's a, it's a lengthy chapter. We're not going to obviously go through this verse by verse, um, but we're going to kind of mine out what we're talking about in the first place. So Daniel chapter 6 says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom, and over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to him, to them, so that the king would suffer no loss. In other words, when it comes to collecting taxes, these men were making sure that the king didn't miss any of his pennies. Okay, that's what's going on. All right. Then this Daniel distinguished himself among the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. And they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators, the satraps, the counselors, and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree. Notice, as they draw in, not only the satraps, but the administrators and the councils, we're all in this together, right? That's all setting the stage uh, for what's about to happen, all right? And uh, they want him to set up this decree. So all of these advisors have come in together to establish a a royal statute and make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore... King Darius signed the written decree. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and spake concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within thirty days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, who is one of the captives of Judah, notice the the degrading language, that Daniel, 
that one from the captives of Judah does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Now, O king, that is the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke to Daniel, saying, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now the king went to his palace, and he spent the night fasting, No musician, and no musicians were, were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out, with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the, from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done none, no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury, whatever, was found on him because he believed in his God. And the king gave the command and they brought those men who had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote to all people, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men must tremble and fear before God, the God of, the, of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the mouth of the lions. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So I mentioned ahead this uh, text really is an encouragement for us as the children of God uh, to follow and serve our King, uh, the Lord Jesus, no matter what the circumstances, no matter the difficulties, no matter what we face. And with that, the three lessons that I mentioned earlier, uh, that ungodly people will lie and cheat. They will say and do anything for power and control. That the children of God need to obey no matter what the consequences. And, and that no matter how firm one man's decrees can be, the law of God is supreme. Now let me just give you a couple of things in background. It is not my intent to get into all of the intricacies or nuances 
uh, trying to uh, give you all of a background of the book of Daniel or to explain all of the key players. That would be helpful, um, but we don't have the time for it, and the setting is not my purpose, but maybe in the future. For our purpose today, I will simply say a couple of things uh, to set the stage for what's happening here in this text. As a world power, Babylon had recently been defeated. It fell. And such as such, there was a change in power and a new kingdom. The Medo-Persian Empire was now uh, the, the, the rival or the power uh, in that area of the world and really throughout the known world and had taken on the world stage. The Medo-Persians would operate and control much of what Babylon controlled, but beyond that, farther uh, and more to the, to the west than what Babylon did. Wherein Babylon operated under an absolute monarchy, uh, where the king and his word was supreme and that everything else was underneath him, the Medo-Persian kingdom uh, was under a different sort of monarchy. The law was supreme. And once enacted, even the king was under the law, as you probably noted in this passage. So Nebuchadnezzar, for instance, earlier in the book of Daniel, could break his own law if he wanted to, um, if it was good for him at the moment. He did whatever he wanted, and he was the sovereign as an absolute monarch. But that was not the case for Darius or Cyrus. The law was over them. And so once enacted and decreed, the law was supreme. And that was the case here. In this text, you see that the king, once the law is enacted, was underneath the law. Daniel, uh, just for those who might be tuning in, was taken from by Babylon from Jerusalem when he was an adolescent, an early age, maybe an early teen, uh, and made to be a slave in Babylon, which had recently fallen. So he has been in slavery nearly all of his life, 70 years possibly, and he served under two different kings of Babylon, and now we can see him really at the seat of power and the Medo-Persian king. But he's been there for some long time. He's probably 80-some years old at this point. Okay, In these world empires, controlling the populace was really important. All right, um, We understand that. They needed to have their thumb on people. And uh, control was was handled differently by these different world empires. So Assyria that preceded Babylon was a kind of a terrorist state. It threatened violence and would carry it out if you would not uh, do anything. It would take people and disperse them to different parts of the world, moving one person or clan or one nation to one location and geographical location and, and another to another. Babylon captured people, um, placed them into slavery and into their service, and enslaved them for their life. Life was cheap, life was expendable, and either you complied with what was being told to you or you were executed. Medo-Persia, on the other hand, as a world empire, on the onset seemed a little nicer. Um, they, um, by allowing people to return to their native lands, um, they controlled people through heavy taxation. These state traps, if you would, were separate um, regions uh, which were underneath the control of people 
um, that would have all kinds of covert activity going on to watch over you. And so it was kind of like communism in one sense in which there were a lot of people who would report you. If you didn't pay your taxes, there was a lot of pressure, but it controlled people through uh, a more sophisticated spy network, if you would, that was watching over the people. They also developed a complex system of taxation uh, with these satraps. And so they brought in a lot of revenue, which was very important to make sure that the king continued. It was a very wealthy empire and accomplished many things. So as we come into the text today, we can see that the new government is still in flux. Um, There's a struggle for power within the ranking officials. Um, Daniel does not fit in with the other satraps, and they are looking to remove him um, by whatever means necessary. Um, Other than Daniel outranking them uh, or being considered for a promotion, it does not really say why they didn't like Daniel or why they disliked him, if you would. Unless they disliked him because, as verse 3 says, he had an excellent spirit or, um, as verse 4 says, he had a faultless character character, or possibly, as verse 5 says, because of his faith in God. All right, those are the only descriptions of Daniel, and so there's no competing problem that can be seen within the text of Scripture. Probably it was nothing, um, it was not anything more than a play for power because under Daniel's oversight, it would be an environment where Daniel would not bend the rules to help them, Um, he would not allow them to do things outside of the rules, that he would hold them and would not allow them to play with the numbers in their favor as they collected taxes. Not really sure. I'm only speculating as to what that might be. In any event, as we look here in this text, we find um, this whole scene playing out. And it strikes close to home to us. There's a lot of what's going on here that, that we can kind of identify with a little bit more now than we could have maybe six months ago. I suppose with the background information and knowing the recent events and our own context, uh, it's not difficult to understand why I landed on this text today. I think we have all seen and felt a bit of power struggle, right, between federal, state, local governments Even here in the state of Wisconsin, the state legislature um, successfully challenging the governor's orders and the state Supreme Court striking down um, those orders by the DHS and by our governor. And so we've all likely heard of other events across our country, heavy-handed local officials in different places of the country using their power in abusive ways. So I think we kind of can identify with this a little bit more. And two, we've all probably felt a different atmosphere. I don't know about you, but we've all felt a little different atmosphere. Even in our little small town and small area of Marinette Menominee, as we go to our business and our shopping, there's, of course, uh, the look and sense of fear on some people. As you walk around, you can actually see it. You can see it in their eyes. You can see there uh, the fear of this threat of the virus, Um, And so that's something that you can see. And then, of course, um, 
we have in our own mind a consciousness and a sensitivity of all of these changing rules that are going on. An order comes out from the governor's office, don't do this, do this. It was legal yesterday, it's not legal today. Today it's legal, tomorrow it won't be. All of those things, and, and am I doing it right, and am I not doing it right? Am I bothering somebody? Are they going to report me? Right? I think we've all sensed a little bit of that. Um, further, and this is just a little bit of a burr under my saddle. I'll just state it right out. Uh, in the in the governor's orders um, that came out from the DHS, one of the things that was written, I uh, received this, uh, in my response to my appeal to the governor to allow churches to stay open, one of the things at the end of that was a description. It was a very generic response, by the way. And it was just basically outlining um, the Safer at Home Act. So you can go there and see this. This isn't anything that I'm disclosing that it wasn't pertinent to anybody to go on to the state website. But in the Safer at Home Act, at the very end of the Safer at Home Act, it stated emphatically, if you see someone disobeying these orders, report them to the police. Now, I have a problem with that. I, I understand um, that, that there is a concern. But I also have a problem when you start turning citizens on each other and you begin to create an atmosphere of hostility within the very state in which we live. Those kind of orders weren't necessary. And that kind of thing was actually happening. Furthermore, in the Badger Bounce Back program, if you would actually look at that Badger Bounce Back program, you'll find at the end of it, it speaks about electronic surveying that is going on. And that is some really technical stuff that's going on in tracking and surveying people's lives, which is an invasion of privacy. Now, there's a lot to that, but all of this is happening, and the point that I'm coming to is simply that we've all felt this. We've felt this as we have moved and gone about. Now, I'm not here to address these things, but to uh, but was trying to strike a balance as I think of coming together or beginning regathering, and I'm thinking of Memorial Day, and I'm thinking of what we have gone through, and as we're starting to come back, and all of those. It was hard for me to... I didn't want to be in Colossians chapter three at this point, just because it was mortify your members which are upon the earth. I just was like, okay, next week maybe, but this week let's just um, make it about um, regathering, make it about um, uh, the, the, the beginning of, of our church coming back together and um, the healing of our country, if you would. Um, this kind of stuff has been sad. Uh, the responsibility to remember those who have given their lives to protect our freedom is important, and especially in view of what we have been going through, realizing that many of our freedoms we, we um, have willingly given over for a short time to address a virus, um, but certainly would not willingly just hand them all over for indefinite periods of time. Remembering those who have given their lives is important, and it's a part of this. It also reminds us, as we think of those who have given their lives, of how valuable those freedoms are, and how priceless was the gift that they have given us, and how important it is to remember them. 
they've given their lives, and um, and many believers, Christians, have given their lives in the service to Christ that we might have the faith that we have. All that to say, as we come to the text, these thoughts have been just bouncing all over my mind, and it was hard for me to stay in Colossians today. We're in Daniel 6. Let me walk through these three important lessons for you from the text in hope to remind us of those both who have given their lives for us in a sense of allowing us to have the freedoms we do as well as our Christian heritage and those who have given their lives for our beliefs. Number one, first important lesson. Ungodly people will say and do anything for power and control. That wasn't just true in Daniel's day. It's always been true. It's a part of this world. It's a part of the world system. And so as we look into the text, we get a a, a quick sketch of the scene and the treachery that is at work in this quest for power. The king favors Daniel, and that's to the disapproval of his peers who are willing to go great lengths to rid themselves of him. To them, Daniel appears to be an obstacle, a, a, an intrusion on their success and their happiness. And the only answer is either to discredit or to destroy him, of which they chose the later. But how? How can they do this? That doesn't seem to be an easy situation because, as the text makes it clear, he is a virtuous man. Um, he is loyal to his king and he is loyal to God. The conspiracy is great. You can see it, as I mentioned already in reading the text. The conspiracy is great. They are all in this together as they brainstorm and pool their resources, their, their mental capabilities on the possible routes and plans to remove Daniel. And after conducting and, and um, uh, going through their think tanks, if you would, how can, we, how can we discredit this man or how can we remove him? After conducting their studies, they quickly realize that this would be no easy task. His character is impeccable, he's loyal, and he follows the rules. What kind of a guy is this? At last, a plan is contrived. They must write a law, a new law, concerning his faith that will force him to choose between God and government. Certainly, he will choose his God. They got that right about Daniel, didn't they? In their think tank, in their brainstorming, they did identify what was most important to Daniel. And that was his relationship to his God, which would not be interrupted no matter what decree. And so, um, but how, they might have asked, how do we get the king to sign such a law? How do we convince him that it is important? Um, how, do we, how do we let him know that we'll have his back? Well, first, we must all go in together with one harmonious voice, which will be convincing in and of itself. After all of this, uh, this is the way to determine a loyalty, right, to the kingdom is by our allegiance to you and we'll show it to you how we are um, really supporting you. It cannot be too safe as the new kingdom 
um, goes. The king wants those to be supportive and loyal to him. And, on, uh, and so as they come, they come with all. And they're looking to, to weed out any possible person who would subvert the king or be disloyal to the king. Second, maybe, as they planned this together, they might have said, we will play to the king's pride and to his ego, which will blind him to our real agenda. Every man thinks more highly of himself, and his pride will blind his eyes from what we're actually doing. We're doing an end around as we present this to him. So goes the narrative. The law is signed The king himself cannot retract it. And at once um, that it has been issued, he is disappointed with himself. He is distressed for Daniel. And we see that all going on. And so as we turn our attention to our contemporary society, we have seen this unfold many times. We're fully aware that our country is divided and has been divided for some time. The divisions that exist are not insurmountable, I don't think. At least not in theory. But they certainly seem like they will not be remedied anytime soon, largely because there is no spirit of cooperation in our country at all. There's no uh, desire for the greater good. The longer um, this goes on, the more it seems to exist um, that... Politicians are oftentimes more concerned with their re-election than they are with the ravages that are going on with the country. And we see this raging going on right now. So there's no effort, or it doesn't seem to be much of an effort, to find any middle ground um, on the issue. There seems to be, and I think we would all agree, there seems to be an agenda behind everything. The different factions spend more time blaming the opposition than trying to find solutions to the problems. Think tanks produce narratives and everything has to fit within the narrative or the people who oppose it are villainized and squashed. Civility and respect for differences is rare, if not altogether non-existent. It's a sad day. It's a gloomy day in reality of where we find ourselves within our country today with the division that is a part of it. But we shouldn't be surprised. It shouldn't have caught us off guard. If we study the scriptures, we know clearly in the depravity of man, it's clearly seen. We can find plenty of places, in fact, littered throughout all of the scriptures, are many instances of man's depravity and quest for power and, and desire for, for glory. And so uh, all of this is very clear uh, in the Scriptures and it shouldn't surprise us. And even the founding fathers of our country, as a, of our nation, understood the, the razor edge that our freedoms were built upon and gave ample warning of the potential failure in the future. Of what would happen of how important the freedoms were, but how quickly they could be lost. For instance, William Penn wrote this. It's a very familiar quote. Many of you have probably heard it. Governments, he said, are like clocks. 
They go from the motion men give them, and as governments are made and moved by men, so by them they are ruined too. Wherefore, governments rather depend upon men than men upon governments. Let men be good, and the government can't be bad. But if it be ill, they will cure it. But if men be bad, then let the government be never so good. They will endeavor to warp and spoil it to their turn. How accurate. Right? Good men will produce a good government. No matter what system. From one end of the spectrum of of human government to the other, good men will make the best out of whatever is there. But evil men will seek power, will desire power, and will squash people in the process. James Madison, in the Virginia Convention, assembled to ratify the U.S. Constitution, said these words, I go on this great Republican principle that the people will have virtue and intelligence to select men of virtue and wisdom. (laughs) I don't know if we have that same feeling anymore. Is there no virtue among us? If there be not, we are in a wretched situation. No theocratical checks, no form of government can render us secure. To suppose that any form of government will secure liberty and happiness without virtue in the people is a shaminical idea. I don't think I pronounced that correctly. If there, if there be sufficient virtue and intelligence in the community, it will be exercised in the selection of these men so that we do not depend on their virtue or on the confidence in our rulers, but on the people who chose them. Pretty remarkable statements. Let me give you one more. Daniel Webster wrote this. Our ancestors established their system of government on morality and religious sentiment. Moral habits, they believed, cannot be safely trusted on any other foundation than religious principle, nor any government be secure which is not supported by moral habits. Whatever makes men good Christians makes them good citizens. Right? Powerful statements. The point here is straightforward. It's easy to observe ungodly people who have no real moral compass but are only out for themselves will say and do anything to get their way. Put on top of that a quest for power and they will do about anything to anyone who gets in their way. The scene in this text plays out, and, and throughout all of human history, we can see it repeated over and over again. Daniel is really a type of Christ. That is, he is a foreshadow of Jesus. Jesus uh, was the future Lamb of God who would be falsely accused, who would be betrayed who would suffer unjustly. And so, um, Daniel is a type, if you would, a foreshadow of Jesus who would come, willingly come into our world and take upon our sin, be falsely accused, crucified, 
and slain by the powers that be during his day. All this that we might have salvation. That brings us to the second point. The children of God must obey God and bear the consequences. What follows in the narrative is certainly expected by anyone familiar with the book of Daniel. He lived in a pagan nation since being enslaved as a young man. And now, some 70 years later, he was not about to change how he lived out his faith. The text makes it clear that when he says, that when it says, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he feared and trembled and ran the other way. (laughs) What does it say? He went home and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since the early days. This was his pattern that he had been keeping for all of his life in this pagan nation. Some might take issue with Daniel, saying that he was disobeying the clear mandate of the king and the law of the land. Not going to get into that argument. The text will vindicate Daniel and incriminate the men who had suffered um, his end that they had determined for him. It does not always turn out that way. Just like the Lord Jesus, sometimes the innocent suffers. Sometimes those who follow him will suffer injustice and an earthly fate. That said, the fact still remains that the people who fear God and seek Him must follow His commands and they will be the best of citizens in any country wherever they live. Again, I could quote several of our founding fathers to this point. Let me just give you one. James Madison said these words, We have staked the whole future of American civilization not on the power of government, Far from it. We have staked the future of our political institutions upon the capacity of mankind for self-government. Upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves, to control ourselves, to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. These are the words of men who established our country, and there are more. So while God-fearing people who seek to live out their faith ought to make the best citizens, and most often do, but because of their compliance to law-keeping and order to Christ, they are sometimes picked out and looked at with, with disgust. It's vital that, that in this rare situation comes up, we have to handle it with care and delicacy. God has ordained human government. He has. And it is appropriate for us to submit ourselves to every ordinance of man. Romans chapter 13. You can go there and look it up. And so we have to handle every situation with delicacy. Um, It is our duty to do so whenever possible. It should be the rare occasion, the anomaly to have to go outside of that for the Christian. But when it becomes obvious that there is a clear conflict between obedience to man and obedience to God, we must be prepared to deal with the consequences of such a decision. 
throughout the book of Daniel, you see that narrative. That isn't just here in Daniel 6. This is the way it starts off, right? With Daniel and his three friends who are not going to eat meat that is offered unto idols and all of the food that's there, right? It begins that way. It continues that way when they're told to bow down to an idol later or be thrown into a fiery furnace. And again here, so the narrative of Daniel is very clear um, that when living in a heathen nation, you may be forced to bear the consequences of living for God and choosing uh, that decision. So throughout this book, you see that narrative play out in a positive way. But as mentioned earlier, it isn't always the case. In many cases, the scriptures would would show us that actually quite the opposite happens. Many prophets of the Old Testament met their end by prophesying what God had told them to say. Many people have that Hebrews chapter 11 verses 36 through 38 say this, still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and of imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They were wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world is not worthy. So obedience to God is supreme. As long as the rules of human government do not infringe, we must obey when possible. We are always mindful of the pattern of our Savior. Following may result in suffering. Finally, then, the third important lesson, no matter how firm man's decree, God's rule is supreme. God's rule is supreme. If I get this right, and if you picked up on this as I read the passage earlier, the primary message of Daniel chapter 6, the primary emphasis of the narrative is this repeated phrase, the law of the Medes and the Persians doesn't alter. Three times in this text it says it. Three times it's set up against God's rule, God's overarching rule. And so, uh, this fact, repeated several times, is meant to grab your attention as a reader um, and, and not miss the point. It's set against a righteous man living in a pagan kingdom who is not seeking a quarrel, but he finds himself in a controversy that he did not seek and did not deserve. The scene where the men catch Daniel praying is always interesting to me. I don't know about you. I try to envision things. I try to picture how that's going on. This isn't like a bottom floor apartment. This is his upper room. All right? Second floor, windows open, everything else closed. They find him praying. You know? I don't know about you. I, I picture some of those comedies where there's somebody eavesdropping at the door, you know? But there's five or six guys. You know, they kind of fall into the door, catching Daniel. Daniel chapter 6, verses 10 through 11. Give us that scene. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks 
before his God, as was his custom since the early days. Then these men assembled. So, it sounds like a whole host of them. Assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. (gasps) How dare you, right? How dare you? I'm not sure about you, but I try to visualize that. What that looked like. I struggled just a bit. To me, it seems almost comical. It wasn't. I sort of imagine those guys, you know, crashing through the door as Daniel begins to pray. They set the trap. And they were knew that he would follow through on it. They knew his character. Um, it wasn't that he was unsuspecting. But he wasn't moved. Nor was he surprised. What is next in the text is most interesting. After being... Uh, or bringing the allegations to the king, what's really unsuspecting to us is to see this pagan king be more moved than Daniel in the text, right? Pick that up. I mean, he is immediately, upon finding out that he was the mouse that was caught in the trap, um, Immediately upon finding this out, it says he was displeased with himself. Right? And the text, really, the law of the Medes and the Persian doesn't change, doesn't change, doesn't change. And this king is underneath that law. He can't do anything about it. He has been duped by those who were underneath him. And so, um, as you as you look at this text, you see this kind of coming out. When all hope is lost for undoing the law... And Daniel is cast into the pit of lions. The king agonizes. You know, right? He's, he's sleepless. He can't get to sleep. He doesn't want any music being played. He's anxiously awaiting for the first break of dawn. He rushes out to the den. I mean, just picture all of these things going on in this pagan king who um, realized that he was the one who had lifted his hand against Daniel, his friend. It seems that Daniel got more rest that night than the king himself, right? Daniel's in the lion's den. The angels shut their mouths. I'm just like, I'm chilling down here. I'm good, right? (laughs) And the king doesn't sleep at all. He's anxious and he comes out. And as he comes to the den, he cries out with that agony. And so, you, you see this going on in the text. In the end... Um, it seems that Daniel got more rest than the king himself. The men and all that belonged to them received the faith that they had planned for Daniel. But more importantly is the climax of the passage. And this is where we'll conclude. But in the climax of the passage, in Daniel 6 and verses 25 through 28, the king affirms, um, just like Nebuchadnezzar did earlier, the king affirms this. He says in verse 25, the king then King Darius wrote, to all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Almost sounds like a New Testament passage. I make a decree. Okay? I'm making a new law. Alright? That, that um, I make this decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. And this statement is is priceless. For he is the living God 
and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. My decrees are only extended to my dominion and to my power, but that's as far as they can go. But his kingdom and his dominion exceeds it all. It's an eternal kingdom and an eternal reign. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? This Daniel then prospered um, and into the reign of Cyrus. And so the text goes on. Again, who knows what we'll face as we move forward as a country, as individuals, as Christians. We know that there's a warfare going on. There is a, a, a literal, not just figurative, a literal warfare, not just controlling ideas, but battle for power going on. And yet we know that there is only one who is in charge of all of these things, and we can rest in his sovereign power who reigns forever. We can affirm um, what Darius said when he said his kingdom is forever, right? And we can rest in uh, his overarching work and lordship over all things. So we can rest in that. We're going to close um, by singing a hymn. So I'll invite Brother John to come and I'll lead us in a closing hymn. Remind us you're staying here just to wait just a few minutes after before the actual um, video stops, all right, before you get up. So just hang tight after the prayer. Take your hymnals, turn to number 550, we'll sing together, channels only, number 550. How I praise Thee, precious Savior, that Thy lovely hold of me. Thou hast saved and cleansed and filled me, that I might thy channel be. Channels only, blessed Master, but with all thy wondrous power. Flowing through us, thou canst use us every day and every hour. Empty that thou shouldest fill me, a clean vessel in thy hand, with no power but as thou givest, graciously with each command. Channels only, blessed Master, but with all thy wondrous power. Flowing through us, Thou canst use us every day and every hour. Jesus, fill now with Thy Spirit hearts that full surrender know that the streams of living water from our inner man may flow. 
channels only, blessed Master, but with all thy wondrous power, flowing through us, thou canst use us every day and every hour. Let's pray. Father, the life of Daniel is a wonderful reminder that we are to be first known for a faith in you, a faith that acknowledges our sinfulness, our absolute need of a Savior, and that you are our salvation. And that our faith results in a character that is faultless, as the Spirit fills us, as we choose not our will but yours, and that our life then is marked by an excellent spirit as we live out in our daily lives the evidences of your working in us, the fruit of the Spirit. And that as others see our lives that they will have no choice but to acknowledge the fact that we are fundamentally different, that there is something about us that they do not have. And that it will both attract and repulse them. That they will accuse us. And that we will be challenged for our response. Will we choose to openly acknowledge you or to deny you? My prayer is that we would be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That we would not be careful in our answer, that we would say that we are trusting in our God and that we must first obey Him, knowing that you can save us, but that if you do not, your grace is sufficient for every day of our life. Thank you for the opportunity to gather today to remember freedoms be challenged from your word to fellowship with one another and to worship you together. In Jesus' name, amen.